Christmas is finally here. All month long, we've been counting down to Christmas. Our countdown began in the Garden of Eden 4,000 years before Christmas. We stopped off 700 years before Christmas, and we heard the words of the prophet Isaiah. Last week, we visited that little town of Nazareth nine months before Christmas, and we heard the words of the angel Gabriel as he spoke to the Virgin Mary. And this morning, we find ourselves the night before Christmas as we go to that little town of Bethlehem. Today, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the gospel according to Luke chapter 2. I'll be reading the first 20 verses of that sacred passage. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's Holy Word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the house of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth, placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appear with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them, and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The background of the incarnation is a story that is scandalous. Mary and Joseph were pledged to be married to one another. And before they came together in holy matrimony, it was discovered that Mary was pregnant. In those days, marriages were arranged. I got to be honest that growing up, that sounded like the kookiest idea I'd ever heard of. Then I became a father. And the idea has some merit. So apparently in those days, Joseph was identified as one who would be a worthy husband for Mary. 
Mary would have been between the ages of 12 to 14. It's Matthew who says that Joseph was a righteous man. Mary is described as one who is humble and highly favored in the sight of God. They were the best students in the youth group. They were looked up to by everyone in their community. Now, in those days of an engagement, that engagement would have lasted about a year. And before Mary and Joseph were legally uh, bound together as husband and wife, it was determined and discovered that she was pregnant. In those days, that was extremely scandalous. Nazareth is not a big town. You can imagine all of the stares and the glares. In those days, it was required that if someone was going to break an engagement, a divorce was needed to dissolve even an engagement. I think that Joseph probably would have divorced Mary. He was adamant that that baby was not his. Now, she had concocted some story saying that what was conceived inside of her was from the Holy Spirit. Everybody knows it takes two to tango, and so nobody really believed Mary's story. And I'm not even convinced that Joseph did either until the night he had that dream. An angel appeared to him and said to him, what is conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. He will be born. You're to give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From that night on, Joseph was determined that Mary was going to be his bride. I can still imagine the whispers in the marketplace, though. The gossip in the synagogue. The rumors on the street. Those people in those days were vicious and they didn't even have social media. Can you imagine if they had Facebook, what they would have posted and said? So when... Caesar Augustus issued the decree that a census was to be taken. Joseph saw this as a great opportunity to get Mary out of the lion's den called Nazareth. So he took her the 90-mile journey to Bethlehem. Because Joseph was of the line and lineage of David and every man had to return to his city of his ancestors. It's a 90-mile journey. Now, for you and I, we think well, that only takes about an hour and a half. That's like going from here to Huntsville. Not a very long trip at all. But the reality is that in the first century, it was a grueling trip, treacherous trip, dangerous trip, in fact. It would have been dangerous and grueling for anybody, let alone a young girl at the end of her third trimester of pregnancy. She already feels ugly and fat. She's at that point where Nothing fits right. She can't catch her breath. Her ankles are swollen. She hasn't had a good night of sleep in weeks. And now Joseph put her on a donkey and every 15 minutes, she's got to go to the bathroom. I mean, this was a long, grueling trip. Eventually, they made their way to David's town, Bethlehem. And when they got there, the surroundings were scary. People were up and down the streets, the streets were teeming with crowds of people and everybody was obnoxious and cranky and rude and just aggravated. Nobody wanted to be there. Keep in mind, the only reason they are there is because the Roman government had issued a census and there's only one reason for that census, taxation. 
Another example of how Uncle Caesar is, once again, big government, and he's going to reach in and take more of the hard-earned money of his Roman citizens. Oh, they were aggravated, even have to be there to begin with. And the lines at the Census Bureau, oh, they were out the door and around the building, down the street, and everybody was jockeying for a better position. They just wanted to register and then get back home. This was a scary place. Everybody was obnoxious. It came time for Mary to deliver her firstborn. And we read that there was no room for them in the inn. Now, most of the time, we conjure in our minds a ruthless, heartless, overweight innkeeper who gruffly says, no room for you in the inn. The reality is that there was no innkeeper at all. The inn is not a Motel 6. The inn is more like a campground. For the scripture to say there's no room in the inn, what Luke is telling us is there's no space in the campground. Every every slot, every spot is taken up and there's no room in the inn. Joseph is more ingenious than any of us give him credit for. He knows that the contractions are getting closer and more painful. Something is going to have to be done. Joseph is also aware that this is the time of year when shepherds are out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. What does that mean? It means the stables are empty. At least there's a, a warm place for them to go and find shelter for the night. So, so Joseph takes his uh, uh, soon-to-be bride and, and takes her into a stable. And oftentimes in the cute, quaint pageantry of our Christmas programs and celebrations, we forget that Jesus was born in a barn. That literally, the, the rock of ages was born and delivered in a rustic cave. And it's there where Jesus was placed in a manger. Luke tells us that three times. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 16. Now, there's more than one theologian who says, don't read into that. There's nothing to it. The fact that he's in a manger just means that's the only place where he could be. He's in a cattle trough. He's in a barn. He's in a rustic cave. Oh, but my friend, I've never known the Bible to stutter. That whenever the Bible repeats itself, normally God does that on purpose. And so when I see that, I just can't help but remember that Bethlehem is the Hebrew word that means house of bread. Bet-la-hem, house of bread. And Luke, who's a doctor by trade, says that, that when Jesus was delivered, he was placed into a cattle trough, a place where even the cows feed. And later in his ministry, Jesus will call himself the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. I just can't help but see that as Luke tells us in a very rhythmic, repetitive fashion that Jesus was placed in a manger, that with the arrival of Jesus is the satisfaction of all of our needs, that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that we need. He is the bread of life. He's placed in a cattle trough in the city of Bethlehem, house of bread. And Luke tells us that not once, but twice, but three times. Verse 7, verse 12, or verse 16. And on three occasions we're told that Mary wrapped him in swaddling clothes and, and placed him in a manger. 
The story is scandalous. There are parts of the story that are scary. But I think that in the heart of Mary and Joseph, they realized this is something spectacular. There's something significantly spectacular about this story. Because with the safe, spectacular arrival of Jesus, there was something of importance. Not just for them, but for anyone. Whenever a new king was born, it was customary for a poet to make the pronouncement of the birth to the rich and famous in the palace halls. Yet with the arrival of the king of kings and lord of lords, it wasn't a poet, it was an angel who made the announcement not not to the rich and famous, but to the poor and lowly, a bunch of dirty shepherds. Not in the palace halls, but rather in pasture hills. It was an angel who appeared, said to the group of roughneck shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Now that pronouncement is lit. I mean, that is a magnificent announcement. It is jam-packed with information. Do not be afraid, the angel says. I bring you good news of great joy. The word good news is euangelion, which is gospel. The angel says, I am proclaiming to you the gospel of great, the Hebrew, the Greek word is mega, the gospel of mega joy, great joy. And who's it for? It's for all the people, for anyone who would believe, everyone who would believe. This is the gospel of good news for unto you and that second person plural that's y'all unto y'all is born this day right there in the city of Bethlehem the city of David Savior Christ the Lord that word Christ is is Messiah it's the long-awaited anointed one that, that the Christ of ages, that the one that's been prayed for and longed for and hoped for and looked for, that one Messiah to come and to seek and to save the lost, that Messiah has now come and he's come for you. And this will be a sign. He'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes. He'll be placed in a manger. And suddenly there was with that one angel, a multitude of angels Declaring glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men upon whom his favor rests. Those glorious angels proclaimed that. They, they praised that. They said that. I'm assuming they sang that. Luke doesn't say that they sang that. In fact, the only place that you really find singing angels is in the book of Revelation. Every other place, angels just kind of call to each other or say to each other or speak to each other. I don't know if they can really sing until I get to the book of Revelation. And clearly in Revelation, the angels are singing one to the other. I think this is a sneak preview of a coming attractions of what's to come because on this night I think that as they're praising and as they're speaking and as they're saying they're singing it rhythmically they are singing it with all their might glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among whom his favor rest with the safe spectacular arrival of Jesus two things were accomplished glory to God in the highest is first and second peace on earth. With the arrival of Jesus, there is glory to God in the highest. 
Mission accomplished. That's what the angels were proclaiming. It, it is, it's happened that the miracle has taken place. Incarnation, God coming down in human form. This is the Christ child, the God man. This is a safe arrival and glory to God in the highest. The word glory means fame, honor, respect. It is that, that God is worthy of all of our respect and all of our honor and all of our fame. He is not just a tribal God. He is the global God. And so his renown is worldwide. It goes as far as the east is from the west. And it even reaches up to the highest of heavens. Glory to God in the highest. Now God's done some spectacular things in the past. But the apex, the pinnacle of what he has done was seen on that night with the safe arrival of the Christ child. And with his coming, glory to God in the highest. And on earth? Peace among men upon whom his favor rests. What does it mean for there to be peace among men upon whom his favor rests? You got to be clear about what your definition of peace is. Peace does not mean the absence of violence. Because to be honest with you, the arrival of Jesus instigated violence. It's Matthew who tells us that wise men from the east came to worship the newborn king. They had seen his star. They had followed it. They brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They went to the existing king and asked King Herod the whereabouts of the newborn king. That didn't sound very wise to me. I mean, to go to the existing king and say, hey, where's your replacement? It doesn't sound very smart, especially if you know Herod the way we know Herod. He is a paranoid schizophrenic. I mean, he's scared of his own shadow. He consulted with the sacred scholars. They said that this Messiah, this great king, was to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod said to those magi, those wise men, those astrologers, he said, uh, you go to Bethlehem and you'll find that child you're looking for. And when you've worshipped him, come back and tell me, because I too want to go worship. If Herod had been Pinocchio, his nose would have started to grow right there. He had no intention of worshipping the Christ child. He wanted to kill the Christ child. And so when the angel warned the wise men to return home a different route and Herod realized he had been outwitted by those wise guys, he was furious. So he issued a decree and the decree said that every baby boy, two years of age and under, born in Bethlehem or even around its vicinity must be executed. Historians call this the slaughter of the innocents. I can well imagine that if some of the parents of those victims, those little baby boys, if some of those moms and dads heard that with the arrival of Jesus, there's peace on earth. I'm sure to them it didn't feel like peace. Felt like chaos. They would have asked the question, why was my son killed with the arrival of that 
child. What's so significant about that child that turns my life upside down? He comes and the, the, uh, the announcement says peace on earth. And yet because of his arrival, it, it incites violence so that my son is killed. I'm sure to those moms and dads of baby boys, two years of age and under living in Bethlehem and in its vicinity, it didn't feel like peace. It felt like the opposite of peace. Chaos, turmoil, aggravation. So what is peace? Peace is not the absence of violence. Peace is the reconciliation of enemies. That's what peace is. Peace is the reconciliation of enemies. The Bible says that you and I are enemies of God. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. We are enemies of God because of our own selfishness and our own sinfulness. Because we uh, wag our finger in the face of God and we think that we're a better God than God is. And so because of our unholiness, we declare to a holy God war against him. And we are his enemies. With the arrival of Jesus, not only is there glory to God in the highest, but now there's the very real possibility of peace on earth among men to whom his favor rests because with the coming of the Christ child with a safe spectacular arrival of that Christ child now the plan is really really in motion for salvation because he safely arrived in the manger that secures that this Christ child is the God man he did not become the God man he is the God man he is fully God and fully man in the manger, as much fully God and fully man on the cross. And because of his safe arrival in the manger, it solidifies that what's going to happen some 33 years later when Jesus will be stretched wide and raised high and he will die in your place and mine because God understood that those precious little fingers would be nailed to a cross made of wood and that precious perfect brow would have a crown of thorns shoved upon it and his and his. Uh, soft little back would be rubbing not only against the wood of the manger but the wood of the cross this Christ child came to bring peace in your life and in mine because we who were once enemies of God we've now been reconciled through faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ this is what Paul declares in Romans chapter 5 verse 1 therefore we have been justified by faith so that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The arrival of Jesus brought glory to God in the highest and perfect peace upon whom his favor rests. Usually the shepherds were the last to know anything. You know, on this day, they were the first to know. When the angels left them, they said to each other, why don't we go to Bethlehem? Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> These guys who made their living by watching sheep said it would be a good idea to leave the sheep unaccounted for on the hillside, right? They're not the brightest guys. They said, you know, uh, we're going to leave them right here and we're going to go. Why? Because what we've heard is greater than those sheep that are on the hillside. So we're going to go to Bethlehem and we're going to see this thing that the Lord has told us about. Why did God tell shepherds? Why not tell 
King Herod? Why not tell royalty? Why not tell nobility? Why not tell the rich and famous? Why did he tell shepherds? I'll give you two reasons of why he told shepherds. And one is richly theological and the other one is overtly practical. The the, the richly theological reason is because if you're going to tell somebody good news, they've got to know the bad news. And shepherds knew the bad news. They knew that they had no shot of getting into heaven outside of God doing something miraculous. They knew they were sinful. They knew they were dirty. They knew they were unclean. They knew they were immoral. They knew they were unethical. They knew that they were sinners. They knew the bad news. They have no hope of getting into heaven unless God were to do something spectacular. So that's a good group of people to tell the good news, right? That's richly theological. There's another practical reason Who's the one group that's going to know where all the stables are in Bethlehem? (laughs) Shepherds, right? And if you're going to send Jesus and he's going to be born in a rustic cave and placed in a manger. Remember, we're told that three times in 20 verses. If you're going to place him in a stable, you better tell people who know where the stables are. And so the shepherds knew exactly where all the stables were in and around Bethlehem. And so they said, Let's go to the one on the northeastern side of town. And if it's not there, we'll go to the one on the western side of town. And then there's another one on the southeast side of town. And, uh, and we'll, we'll eventually find because we know where all the stables are located. Scripture says that they hurried off. They found everything exactly the way they've been told. There was Joseph and there was Mary. Oh, and then there was the Christ child. A baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And they peeked and peered. They glared. They watched. And they saw that everything was exactly the way they had been told. They told Mary and Joseph, you're not going to believe this, but an angel appeared to us. And this is what the angel said about that Christ child. And then a whole bunch of them, a group of the heavenly host, they appeared. And this is what they said. We're told that Mary pondered these things, treasured them up in her heart. The shepherds, they left, and every person they bumped into, they said, you got to go to that specific stable, and you're going to find a baby in a manger. And let me tell you who that baby is. And they retold the story over and over and over again. How do you respond to a story that is so scandalous and so scary, at the same time spectacular? How do you respond to a story like that? Let me encourage you to respond the same way the shepherds responded. They hurried off in obedience. They hurried off. They went as fast as their, as their little hairy legs would carry them. They hurried off and they found it just as they had been told. They hurried off and then they told everybody about the good news. Every place you find the shepherds, they are hurrying off in obedience. If you're anything like me, you'll have a tendency not to hurry off, but to put off. Sometimes there are things we need to do. But instead of hurrying off in obedience, we'll just kind of put it off. Listen, this is a crazy, busy season, this Christmas season. So let's just put some things off, we say to ourselves. We can get to it after the holidays. We can get to it in the new year. We can get to it next month. We'll just put it off. This morning, let me encourage you, do not put off. But I want you to hurry off. Hurry off in obedience. So don't put off holiness. Don't put off moral purity. 
Don't put off prayer. Don't put off evangelism. Don't put off generosity. Don't put off forgiveness. Don't put off reconciliation. No, my friend, because of the safe arrival of the Christ child, there's glory to God in the highest and peace among, among men upon whom his favor rests. So therefore, let's hurry off in obedience. No longer are we to put off that which God has called us to do. We don't put off, we hurry off. This past week, I came across two questions from St. Ignatius. St. Ignatius would always, every day, ask himself these two questions. Where today did I work with Jesus? Second question, where today did I resist Jesus? Where today did I work with Jesus? Where today did I resist Jesus? To the places where St. Ignatius worked with Jesus, he said, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. For those areas and those places where St. Ignatius resisted Jesus, he said, oh, Jesus, please forgive me. What's he telling us? He's saying, do not put off what God has called you to do. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, hurry off in obedience. Don't wait till after the holidays. Don't wait till after the end of the year. Don't, don't wait until the beginning of a new year. If God is calling you to do something, hurry off in obedience. And the reason, the reason is because Christmas has finally come. And with the arrival of the Christ child, in your life and mine, there is glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. The reconciliation of enemies. God has made peace with us for his favor rest upon us. To God be the glory. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. And Lord, even now, there are people who are thinking about things that you're calling them to do in their relationships, in their business, in their holiness, in their purity, in their sin. There are things that you want us to do. And oh, the adversary just keeps on telling us, put it off, put it off, put it off, and put it off. Just a little bit longer, just put it off. Oh, but Father, help us today to hurry off unto obedience. Do not let this worship service pass. Do not let this invitation uh, slip by without us surrendering. Are all of our obedience unto you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.